If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 594. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, get the new class. It's out. If you're on my email list, you're going to get a great coupon on it. 25 People Who Changed America. That is my 20th actual standalone class. Right. So I've got 20 classes now. Uh, there are some bundles. You can get some of the classes bundled together, you know, four classes that go with each other or two classes. There's some other two-class bundles. But as far as a standalone class, it's number 20. So 20 classes at McClanahan Academy. Every time you purchase one of those, you keep this podcast free of charge. So head on over to McClanahan Academy. Make some purchases. Uh, keep this podcast free of charge. Also, click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep the lights on. Help keep the podcast going. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. Do all you can to interact with the show. I really enjoy that. Let people know you like the show. Uh, share it around on social media. It's a great way to get more listeners. When they think it's you're listening to it, they want to listen to it too. And that's how we grow the audience organically. All right. Well, I talked about yesterday... The, uh, the idea that somehow the Confederacy was Nazism in America and how preposterous and stupid the idea is. And anybody thinks that the Confederacy somehow is proto-Nazism or that John C. Calhoun was a Nazi. Uh, I mean, this is all just stupid. Uh, this is what the Straussians run around doing. This is what the neocons run around doing. This is what the left runs around doing. They're all in the same tent together. And then, unfortunately, you've got people that have been duped to, to think this is true, even on the right. Well, we should just go out and admire people like Adolf Hitler. It's stupid. Paul Gottfried wrote a great piece at, Ameri at uh, I'm sorry, uh, Chronicles Magazine about this, this problem in some ways, that there is this view of the South as being also anti-Semitic. And I run across this all the time. People uh, who are, you know anti-Semitic in the South today, and they'll say a bunch of nasty things about Jewish people. And um, as Gottfried points out, this isn't, this isn't true, right? The South wasn't the home of anti-Semitism in America in any way. But that's the perception. It's also the perception the South was some kind of, somehow proto-Nazis. All this perception is absolutely fake. And this Paul Gottfried piece at Chronicles, Driving Miss Racial Activist, is the point. It's a great little piece. I, I remember he was writing it and he wanted to get some contacts with some things out of this. And uh, he, he had, before he was doing it, I knew he was going to publish this piece. But I want to read this because I think it's so interesting. He says, at first blush, the 1989 film Driving Miss Daisy seems innocuous. 
His plot centers around the relationship of an aging Jewish matron, Daisy Worthen, and her, cheer- her black chauffeur, Hoke Colburn. Yet a recent rewatch caused me to notice irksome elements of the plot I missed the first time around. This has to do with the injection of the producer's politics in an otherwise pleasant movie. I mean, look, I agree. The movie's fun. There's funny parts to it. It's an interesting movie. You're going to get this leftist stuff in it. But one thing I'll say is if you want to watch movies or television, it's just going to be saturated with leftism and progressivism. You can't get around it most of the time. So you can either turn it all off or just accept what it is and just kind of look the other way with it. Um, It's hard to do. I mean, even modern Westerns like 1883, which was really good, had a bunch of Woke, woke stuff in it that was just kind of stupid. It was, it was unnecessary for it. Uh, but that's the climate in which we live. He says, as is, as is often with the case with films today, driving Miss Daisy's political message doesn't correspond with true history, particularly the history of Jews and race relations in the American South. The story begins as Miss Daisy's son, uh, Bully, I think that's how you say it, hires Hoke to drive his aging mother, mother whose reflexes are declining around on her daily task. Bully, a wealthy businessman who dutifully runs an industry inherited from his grandfather and father, cares deeply about his mother and is grateful that the widowed Hoke looks in on Miss Daisy after doing her driving. Bully and his wife, to whom he is equally devoted, have no children, and I found myself feeling sorry for this kind of son and indulgent husband. Set in 1950s Atlanta, the movie highlights the increasingly close relationship between two senior citizens of obviously different social backgrounds. Over time, Miss Daisy comes to view Hoke as, less as a black house servant and more as her closest friend. A truth she states at the end of the movie when, as she is being cared for in a diminished state in an upscale nursing home. Now, uh, what's fascinating about this is this is somehow seen as kind of crazy, right? Modern, the modern establishment left would think this is odd. But this kind of stuff happened all the time. All the time. In fact, as we talked about yesterday, this uh, biracial society had been going on by, 19, by the 1950s for nearly 300 years. For, uh, nearly uh, approaching 400 years, right? So there was certainly some of this. And yes, there was, there was uh, racial stereotypes and stratification and other things. But there was an interaction on a daily basis that you did not have in the North. You didn't have it at all. Uh, a friend of mine grew up with a black nanny. And he wrote a wonderful piece about it and how it was so, Im- so influential in his life uh, that that kind of that, that relationship there was in, in his development was just, I mean, amazingly important for him. And this was commonplace around the South. How many places, how many times do you see that in the North? Rarely. Set in 1950s Atlanta, this movie highlights an increasingly close relationship between two. Uh, I, I just read that. I'm sorry. The movie would have done well to stick into character development. Instead, nearly every scene reminds us that segregation existed in Atlanta as it did in other places in the South in the 1950s as well as Washington, D.C. The film also belabors us with the message that anti-Semitism was raging in Dixie back then. In one example, we are shown some nasty southern bumpkin sneering at the Jewish Miss Daisy and Black Hoke as they ride together on a trip from Atlanta to Mobile, Alabama. This outbreak of bigotry makes no dramatic or logical sense. Why would anyone care that a black chauffeur was driving an elderly white woman? They wouldn't, because that would have been commonplace, right? You had, it's funny when you, when you see pictures from this time, uh, nannies were in places that said whites only. 
right? Because they were allowed there because they were nannies. I mean, you had this stuff happening all the time. Even if you go back Intruders in the Dust, which is a fantastic film. It's a William Faulkner story and it was made into a film. It's so good. Mississippi there. But um, you had a lot of interaction between white and black Mississippians that was mostly peaceful, right? I mean, the, the whole situation isn't. It's going to be a lynching. But the whole, but it's mostly peaceful and it comes out that the, the guy was being wrongfully accused and a white elderly lady and a young boy figure it out and save the guy with the help of a lawyer, you know, but they save the guy. It's a great story. He continues, she certainly doesn't look Semitic and the character that Tandy was playing was someone descended from German Jewish settlers who came to the South in the 19th century. People of that background and class would have been hard to distinguish physically or behaviorally from Southern Christians. Indeed, Southern Creoles will look more different from Germanic-looking Southerners than Miss Daisy does from her Christian neighbors. An event that is shown to have transformed Miss Daisy, and which unfortunately did occur, was the 1958 bombing of the oldest Reformed temple in Atlanta by a crazed segregationist. Miss Daisy is so moved by the pervasiveness of Southern bigotry, from which she suddenly realizes that her fellow Jews as well as blacks were suffering, that she becomes an ardent supporter of Martin Luther King Jr., one of the later scenes in the film shows Miss Daisy attending a speech by King, whom she now ardently supports. King's voice is projected just like the voice of Christ and Ben-Hur as, an, as a divine presence whose physical form may be too sacred to be viewed. Significantly, the apolitical hoax who drives her to the event is not even aware of who King is. In any case, the bombing is supposed to have changed Miss Daisy to such a degree that she obviously disapproves of her insensitive daughter-in-law, Florine, going to San Francisco as a Goldwater delegate in 1964. This was somehow a betrayal of the struggle against Southern bigotry, in which all of us should be passionately engaged, engaged by the end of the film. So, right, I mean, I think Gottfried is correct to point out the obvious left slant of this particular film. But it's a film that only can appeal to a certain segment of population who's unaware of what Southern history actually is, right? Who's unaware of the the interaction on a daily basis in the South of many different peoples and of the uh, Jewish history of the South as well. So he says, All of this talk of Southern bigotry reminded me of an occasion last summer when I was interviewed by R. Michael Gibbons, a Georgian filmmaker working on a documentary about Southern Jewry until 1877. Gibbons was inspired to undertake the project after reading Robert Rosen's informative work, The Jewish Confederates. Rosen documents how thoroughly pro-Confederate Southern Jews became during and after the Civil War. Out of the 25,000 Jews who settled in the American South by 1861, 2,000 volunteered to fight for the cause. Secretary of War and later the Confederate Secretary of State, Judah Benjamin, was a, was a Jew, as was one member of the Confederate Senate. One of the first houses of worship in Charleston that declared for secession was Temple Bethel, the congregation to which Judah Benjamin's parents had belonged. Moreover, even after the South's defeat, synagogues throughout the region were decorated with pictures of General Robert E. Lee, General Stonewall Jackson, and Confederate President Jefferson Davis. The graves of Jews who fell in the war were accorded special veneration uh, by their co-religionists, the latter of whom, Rosen notes, were among the most fervent celebrants of the lost cause. So you had this strong pro-Confederate Jewish population, and they were well accepted in society. I mean, it's, you did have... People that weren't, right? You had this anywhere. You had it in the North too. But to say that the South was intrinsically anti-Semitic is a stupid statement. Again, this is where you get to Confederate flag, not uh, swastika. Same. They're not. 
at all. Although a few hundred slaves were in the hands of Jewish owners, Jews in the South had no interest in the abolitionist cause. As the Israeli leftist newspaper Haraz noted reproachfully in a June 2021 article, The Uncomfortable Truth of Jewish Life in the U.S. South. Indeed, many of the Jews residing in the American South came from families that ran plantations in the West Indies. Although German Jews came to be numerically the larger Jewish group by 1861, uh, the uh, the non-German Jews set the tone for Southern Jewish culture and political attitudes. By the early 20th century, the relationship between Southern Jews and Southern Christians was undergoing a change for the worse, one reason why Gibbons is wise in his documentary of Southern Jewry around the 1870s mark. Uh, Sephardic and German Jewish dominance in the South and elsewhere in the U.S. gave way to a far less assimilable Jewish majority from Eastern Europe. The newcomers were politically more radical or else lived apart in culturally alien Orthodox communities. Their presence aroused deep concern and even distaste among members of the Jewish establishment, who did not take kindly to their newly arrived fellow Jews. But even more ominously, this uncongenial addition gave rise to the anti-Semitism that hardly existed in the South before. So see, this is my point about the Southern tradition. If the Southern tradition is Nazi and, of course, by default, racist and anti-Semitic, the evidence is simply not there. Now, as Clyde points out, Southerners are racist. So were Northerners. That was just a given. You can't say that one was and the other one wasn't. That's creating a false dichotomy. So the Southern tradition, as Weaver points out, is anti-fascist. As Gottfried points out, was not anti-Semitic at all. And yet, that's what we're told on a regular basis. It made itself uh, felt in the revived Ku Klux Klan of the early 20th century, and it showed its face in the 1913 Leo Frank case in Atlanta following the murder of 13-year-old Mary Fagan, an employee in the pencil factory partially owned by Frank's uncle. Frank came from an old line affluent Jewish family, rather than a recently arrived Eastern European immigrant family. Although Frank's guilt now seems almost indisputably established, the fact that he was lynched by a mob after his death sentence was commuted was a horrifying development. And there were certainly anti-Semitic tones that ran through the rants of Frank's accusers. The reaction of the Jewish old settlers to the shocking event was generally to remain in their social space while continuing to mingle with the Christian upper class. The Temple Miss Daisy is shown attending the Hebrew Benevolent Congregation, Atlanta's oldest and most prestigious Jewish house of worship, was under the spiritual direction of Rabbi David Marks more than 50 years, overlapping the time of the Frank case, but ending in 1946 before the bombing. Marks was born in the Deep South, and his family arrived here from Germany well before the Civil War. Always intent on maintaining collegial relations with his Christian, particularly mainline Protestant clergymen friends, Marx recoiled from the Zionist movement, which he believed ascribed to all Jews, including his congregation, a foreign ethnic identity. Like most representatives of the classical reform movement, which was brought over from Germany, Marx and his worshippers defined Judaism as a universal religion related to biblical Christianity and stressing ethical monotheism. So here is why there's a, there's a, a congeniality here in the, in the uh, South between Jews and Christians that... In some ways, you didn't have in the North, right? I mean, uh, there is a book written about Lincoln and the Jews, and he supposedly, you know, was relatively, uh, uh, you know, objective with Judaism. Um, maybe, I mean, Jews were in the North, and of course, many of them fought for the Union as well. Uh, but uh, the South was certainly more tolerant of Judaism than uh, than the Republican Party was. I mean, you had certainly people in the Republican Party that were anti-Semitic, and even Lincoln himself. 
His successor, Jacob Rothschild, was of a different disposition and acted as a social activist and strong Zionist, something that the changing composition of his congregation following World War II made possible. The German-Jewish old guard was dying off and being replaced by Eastern European Jews who were not interested in joining polite Southern society and who often felt quite estranged from it. Hailing from Poland, Lithuania, and Russia, these Jews certainly did not have the deep roots in the Old South that the older Jewish community did. And when Rabbi Rothschild became an outspoken civil rights activist, his newer congregants welcomed the move. Author David Verbentine documents the conflicts mostly in northern urban centers between German and Eastern European Jewish communities from the late 19th century on on in a well-researched monograph, The Politics of Non-Assimilation, the American Jewish Left in the 20th Century. Verbentine throws light on this matter by underscoring the blending of radicalism and Jewish identitarianism among the newcomers. The Jews who poured in from Eastern Europe resented the remote Jewish elites for two reasons, for not being sufficiently self-assertive about their ethnic identity and for timidly allying with with the Christian upper class. The response of the newcomers, which marked Jewish leftists thereafter, was to embrace political radicalism as a form of Jewish self-assertion. A long-standing objection that they expressed in Atlanta against Rabbi Marx was that he didn't push back hard enough against bigoted Gentiles and that he failed to unite with black activists against the ruling class. Verbenten might have added to his convincing argument that Eastern European Jews were not alone in the course that they took. Blacks and many others have done exactly the same, namely express their ethnic nationalism by taking radical leftist stances. So he's getting into what happens in the post-war period here uh, and how things changed in the South. That The earliest uh, Jewish groups in the South were, I mean, indistinguishable from Southern society. They were certainly part of it, but it's only later that you had a different group of Jewish people coming into the United States that started thinking about identitarianism, nationalism, that things started to really change in America, and, and in the South in particular, and I think that's an interesting part of this piece. He continues, The bombing of the Hebrew Benevolent, Benevolent Congregation on October 12, 1958, came as a likely consequence of Rothschild's activism, and the Atlanta government and Atlantic Civic Organizations donated huge amounts to repair the damages. This generosity occasioned complaints from black leaders that Atlanta whites cared more about their local Jews than the blacks they had kept down for centuries. Driving Miss Daisy tells us nothing about the ethnic tensions that roiled the congregation. The new political course was was a symptom and result of cultural battles that were already unfolding. In this environment, someone of Miss Daisy's background and lineage would be more likely to repine about the troublemakers who had caused the temple's problem rather than becoming a fangirl of MLK. So here's an old established Jewish family, and Gottfried's mind would have been railing against the Jews, the newcoming Jews, newcomer Jews, rather than embracing a much more radical ideology, because that's actually what was going on. Not something else. Atlanta's Jewish community thereafter continued to move to the left, but the bombing was less a cause than a result of political changes that were already taking place. The Jewish Confederates and their descendants whom Rosen depicts were no longer a critical factor in Southern Jewish society by the 1950s. As a survivor of what was an older Southern Jewry, one would not have expected Miss Daisy to move on to move so quickly in the direction that she did. It's also hard to imagine Bully telling Miss Daisy shamefacedly about uh, Florian's support for Goldwater, as the movie suggests. Perhaps in a sequel we might see a Bully-like character growing even further, or perhaps the phrase would be used in a modern sequel would be getting woke. He would join the Black Jewish Coalition in Atlanta that promoted the Senate campaigns of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in 20, January 2021. 
Note that I am aware of obvious exceptions to the generalizations about the history of Jews in the American South. I've offered in this commentary. German Jews who fled to the U.S. in the wake of the Nazi ascension to power were often on the far left. This is illustrated by the Frankfurt School in exile, whose members were often communist sympathizers. This essay focuses on older German and Central European Jewish settlements in the U.S., going back to the early 19th century. Nazi refugees, like my own family, were another matter. There have also been descendants of Eastern European Jews in the U.S. who do not fit my generalizations, like members of the American Jewish League against communism in the 1950s, or the movie mogul Samuel Goldwyn, or the uh, Annenberg family in Philadelphia, or, or Jews in Brooklyn. But exceptions do not negate the possibility of generalizing about dominant ideological preferences among particular groups. The cultural conflict to which this commentary refers played out in a historically distant fashion when a New York Post columnist in 2015 proposed that a tile in the New York City subway depicting a Confederate battle flag be torn out. The tile which shocked the paper's neoconservative sensibilities was the gift of the German-Jewish owner of the New York Times, Adolf Ox. Ox family had fought for the Confederacy, and his mother Bertha was a proud charter member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The title in the subway was intended to honor a cause to which Ox family had been passionately devoted. I mean, I think this is important to understand how, in, how, in, how the Southern tradition, again, was not Nazi, was not fascist, was not anti-Semitic. I wanted to put these two things together with Weaver yesterday and this piece by Gottfried today because you can see that the, the stereotypical line about uh, the Southern Confederacy and the Confederate flag being pro-Nazi and the Confederate tradition being pro-Nazi and John C. Calhoun being a proto-fascist, he's, he's a precursor to Hitler. All this stuff is just stupid, but it's the neoconservatives, the Straussians, the progressives that are perpetuating this lie and this myth. It's a con job. And tomorrow, I'm going to talk about an essay that appeared a couple of years ago by um, a neoconservative. You're going to know it. You're going to know him. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it yet. you got to get it tomorrow. But by a neoconservative, Straussian, mainstream academic responding to the 1619 Project. So uh, I wanted to get to that because it plays nicely into this. And then, of course, Friday, uh, sorry, Thursday, we're going to wrap up with some politics. But it's all going to go back to this in some way. So anyways, I think that when you look at the mainstream arguments against Confederate symbols or against the South or Southern tradition, it comes down to a lack of knowledge about what actually went on. And I like this piece by Gottfried because it shows, well, I mean, there's more to this. There's more depth to this than what you realize. There's more complexity to this than what you realize. Isn't that what the progressives often say? We need complexity in American history. Well, when you point out real complexity, no, 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 no. That's not complexity. That's not that's not buying the line that we're trying to sell here. You know, what you we, we, can't, we can't have complexity that negates what we want, which is not really complexity, it's uniformity, it's, it's monolithic thinking. That's what they really want. So, anyways. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, and a little complexity goes a long way. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then. <laughs>